You're listening to So So Speaks, a different kind of podcast where each week we discuss everything and anything that matters. No boundaries, no limitations, just real conversations, real stories, and real facts. What's up, guys? Sona here, and I'm back with another episode. Today's episode is an interesting and frustrating one. We're going to be talking about the puzzling murder of Ricky McCormick. On the 30th of June, 1999, the body of a 41-year-old African-American male was found dumped in a field. This person turned out to be Ricky McCormick. But police had no idea what happened and how he got there. The only clues they had regarding his murder were two encrypted notes found in his pants pockets. What do these notes mean? And who murdered Ricky? Let's get into it. On the 30th of June 1999, a woman who had been driving along a field road near Route 367 found the body of an unidentified African-American male in a cornfield in St. Charles County, Missouri, near West Alton. Although the body was badly decomposed, which had been accelerated by its exposure to the elements, Police were ultimately able to determine via fingerprints that the body belonged to a man named Ricky McCormick. Ricky McCormick was a high school dropout with a criminal record who had apparently lived at multiple addresses in the greater St. Louis area and would sometimes live intermittently with his elderly mother. He was living off of disability checks because he had chronic heart and lung problems, although he had at one stage held a job at an Amoco gas station. He was also a father of at least four children, although from what I've read, he did not seem to have much of a relationship with them. At the time of his death, he was 41 years old and unemployed. He had last been seen five days earlier on the 25th of June, 1999, getting a checkup at St. Louis Forest Park Hospital, which no longer exists. Due to the advanced decomposition of his body, The autopsy was difficult, and the pathologists with the St. Charles County Medical Examiner's Office ruled his cause of death as undetermined. That being said, the police suspected foul play, but their investigation led to more questions than answers, and eventually Ricky's case joined the endless pile of cold cases that continues to stump detectives. But 12 years later, in March 2011, Ricky's case resurfaced with an interesting revelation. The FBI revealed something about the case that was not previously disclosed to the public. This new revelation deepened the mystery surrounding his death. Dan Olson, who is the chief of the FBI's Cryptanalysis and Racketeering Records Unit, CRRU in Quantico, Virginia, disclosed for the very first time the existence of two pages of handwritten encrypted notes that were found stuffed in a pocket of McCormick's jeans. Interestingly and shockingly, they were actually unable to decipher the notes. So the reason that they disclosed their existence to the public was so that they could ask for help in deciphering them. Now, these are the world's top code breakers, and they were unable to crack the code, a code written by someone who supposedly could barely write his own name. These notes, at the time of their release to the public, ranked third on the CRRU's list of top unsolved cases, behind the cipher written by the Zodiac Killer in 1969, and a secret threat letter that was written to an undisclosed public agency over 30 years ago. 
Of course, at the time of recording this episode, the Zodiac Killer cipher has actually been solved. So this means that McCormick's notes probably rank second on the CRRU's list of top unsolved cases, which is huge. McCormick's notes have literally stumped the CRRU for over a decade. They tried everything, including state-of-the-art software, and they were still unable to solve them. So one could argue that perhaps there isn't a code to solve. Maybe it's just gibberish. But the FBI is adamant that the cipher can be solved. And according to Olson, the characters are not random. He states that there are many E's, for example, that could be used as a spacer. There are many characteristics that suggest it could be solved, many patterns. And he says the problem is they don't know why it's not solvable. Even with the public's help and a dedicated website just to handle suggestions from the public, since the notes were released, there have been zero developments. Despite this, Olson truly believes that the notes contain leads about where Ricky McCormick was or who he was with in the hours leading up to his death. Only 1% of codes studied by the FBI go unsolved, and this is one of them. This is one of those cases that really has you racking your brain. So in order to even get close to determining what happened to Ricky, we need to not only look into who he was, but also what he did in the days leading up to his death. So who was Ricky McCormick really? Now there isn't much information on Ricky McCormick and his background. But reading the very little that there is paints the image of a troubled and elusive character. His cousin Charles McCormick said that he suspected he suffered from schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, and that when he would talk, it would seem as though he was in another world. Ricky's mother, on the other hand, Frankie Sparks, straight up described him as retarded, which is an unfortunate way to speak about your own son. His aunt, Gloria McCormick, said that when Ricky went to see a psychiatrist, he described Ricky as having a wall in his mind. But apparently, Ricky liked having this wall. He had an active imagination, and in a sense, it was a way for him to escape, as he didn't like living poor. His family also described him as tending to lie and display unusual behavior. In fact, as a child, he would often stand off by himself in school, and his mother would receive calls asking if he was okay. Ultimately, he dropped out of school without really being able to read or write. After this, he supported himself by doing odd jobs, mainly at night, and collecting disability checks for his chronic heart problem. Despite his troubled nature, he was not involved in the quote-unquote street life, and deliberately distanced himself from the people in his neighborhood who would deal drugs outside of his house. That being said, in November 1992, then 34-year-old Ricky McCormick was arrested by St. Louis police for first-degree sexual abuse. He had fathered two children with a girl younger than 14 years old. He had been sleeping with her since she was 11. Despite attempts by his defense lawyer that he was too mentally ill to be competent for trial, a local psychologist evaluated him and deemed him competent. So on September 1st, 1993, Ricky pled guilty and spent 13 months at the Farmington Correctional Center before being let out a year early on conditional release. 
Now, if you remember, I mentioned briefly at the start of the episode that Ricky had at one stage held a job at an Amoco gas station. Now, this Amoco gas station has an incredibly shady past. The original owner of the gas station died in prison while serving life for second-degree murder, and so the business was taken over by a man named Juma Hamdullah. Now, the interesting thing about Juma Hamdullah is that he used an alias up until 2002. So up until 2002, he actually went by the name David Radigan. Now, it's unclear why he did this, but 2002 is, of course, after Ricky McCormick's death. So we can assume that while Ricky worked there, Juma was going by this alias. For this episode, however, and in order to avoid confusion, I am just going to refer to him by his real name, Juma Hamdala. When Juma took over the business, he hired his brother, Baha Bob Hamdala. Baha is the main character in all of this, and you will see why in a minute. In August 1999, less than two months after Ricky McCormick's death, Juma was investigated for allegedly shooting his brother Baha. His brother survived and did not file any charges. According to police records, however, during the course of the investigation, the police discovered that Baha had ties to black gang members in St. Louis, as well as narcotics use. They also specifically said, and I quote, Baha is reported to be violent and in possession of several weapons, which include handguns and knives. In fact, it appears that Baha has a history of extreme violence. When he was 22 in 1997, police saw him pull up alongside a man named Terrence Clark and fire a shot at him. Clark was unharmed and Baha was arrested but never prosecuted. Nine months after that incident, on March 4, 1998, Baha was visiting another one of his brothers, Bajat, at a corner store owned by the family when they got into an argument. Allegedly, Baha grabbed a gun and opened fire on his brother from across the street. Bajat was hit in the abdomen and Baha sped off. Bajat survived, but apparently made up a story about how it was a Hispanic man who shot him and not his own brother, despite the fact that eyewitnesses, one of them which knew him, saw that it was clearly Baha who shot Bajat. The police must have gone based off of the eyewitness reports because six days later, Baha turned himself in and was arrested on a felony charge of first-degree assault. However, Bajat said that he did not wish to prosecute. Later on that same month, Baha was arrested again for second-degree assault for beating a man called Elro Carr with a rusty hammer. He did this because he wanted Elro off of his property. Elro Carr was apparently a homeless drug addict, and Baha said, and I quote, I just figured I'd take care of it myself. On August 7th, 1998, two weeks before Carr's case against Baha was supposed to go to court, Carr, you can probably guess, was gunned down just a few blocks from the Amoco gas station owned by Baha and his family. And of course, the case died that night with him. Carr's murder remains unsolved, but a confidential informant supposedly told police that it was essentially a hit put out by Baha. Now, all of that information is important because it gives us a bit of context as to what kind of environment Ricky was working in. So keep all of that in mind while we go back to Ricky and look at what he was doing in the weeks to days leading up to his death. 
In the early hours of June 15, 1999, around two weeks before his death, Ricky McCormick went to the Greyhound bus terminal in downtown St. Louis and bought a one-way ticket to Orlando. This trip would be the last of at least two trips made to Florida that year. In Orlando, he stayed at the Econo Lodge. It is unclear who he met up with in Florida, but apparently him and his girlfriend, Sandra Jones, made calls to several people in central Florida a couple of weeks before his trip there. The police know this because of the phone records. Additionally, during his two-day stay in Orlando, there were multiple calls between Ricky and his girlfriend. Ricky also made one phone call to the Amoco gas station where he worked, aka the one owned by Baja and his brothers. Ricky's girlfriend, Sandra Jones, would later tell police that she suspected he went to Florida to pick up marijuana. She said that Ricky would accept offers to pick up and deliver packages for money, and he would often bring marijuana in the apartment they shared. The drugs would be sealed in Ziploc bags and rolled together in bundles the size of baseballs. Ricky apparently told her straight up that he was keeping them for Baja Hamdala. She went on to say that Ricky apparently didn't like to talk about his trips to Florida, but she specifically noticed that when he came back from his most recent, and now we know his last trip, things were different. She told police that this time he seemed scared. After his Florida trip, his last days were then spent seeking medical care, which could have also been his way of trying to find a safe place to stay. On June 22nd, 1999, Ricky McCormick went to the Barnes Jewish emergency room complaining of chest pains and shortness of breath. This was actually quite normal for him because he had a history of ER visits and had suffered from asthma and chest pains since childhood. Although he didn't abuse drugs or alcohol, he did smoke at least one pack of cigarettes a day and had been since he was 10 years old. In addition to this, he drank copious amounts of caffeinated drinks, at least 20 a day. So at this ER visit, the doctors ruled out a heart attack, but he was still kept there for two days for observation. He left the hospital on June 24th and was supposed to return for follow-up visits in the coming week but he would never make it to those visits. After leaving the ER, he took the bus to visit his aunt Gloria. He was apparently closer to her than his mother. He stayed with her for a bit and then left. Apparently she offered to drive him, but he declined, and that was the last time she saw him alive. Around 5 p.m. the next day, June 25th, Ricky went to another emergency room at Forest Park Hospital. This time, he said that he had spent the afternoon mowing grass and was now having trouble breathing. Doctors diagnosed it as another asthma flare-up, and he was discharged at 5.50 p.m. His Aunt Gloria, however, said that she heard that he did not immediately leave the hospital, but that he spent the night in the waiting room and left in the morning. His girlfriend told police that she spoke to Ricky on the phone around 11.30 a.m., June 26th, so the same morning that he supposedly left the hospital waiting room. And when he spoke to her, he confirmed this because he told her that he was out of the hospital and on his way to the Amoco gas station to get something to eat. So although his official last known sighting was at the hospital, one could argue that his last known sighting was actually at the Amoco gas station on the 27th of June. Medical examiners later determined that he died that same day. 
In an interview, his aunt later stated that she thought his hospital visits were probably a way for him to lay low. After his body was found, his girlfriend told police that she suspected that he did something wrong in Orlando and that if anyone was going to hurt Ricky, it was most likely his boss, Baha Hamdullah. So what could have happened to Ricky? On December 23rd, 1999, there was an interagency meeting that included a special agent from the FBI, and this was because new information had come up regarding Ricky's case. In this meeting, detectives from St. Charles County, where Ricky's body was found, learned that St. Louis police were investigating a man named Gregory Lamar Knox, a major drug dealer who operated in the same area that Ricky lived. He was being investigated as a suspect in multiple murders, including at least two murder-for-hire schemes. According to police records, an informant told them that Fox was responsible for the murder of a black man who worked at the gas station on Chateau Avenue, which was the Amoco gas station Ricky worked at. The informant also mentioned that the man's body was dumped near West Alton, which is also where Ricky's body was found. In addition to this, St. Louis police had also linked the Hamdalas to criminal activity and a possible association with Gregory Knox. However, despite conducting various stakeouts and investigating the Hamdalas, no arrests ever came of it, because there was never any proof. Knox ultimately ended up in prison anyway. On July 25, 2000, he was arrested. In 2001, he pled guilty to charges of possession with intent to distribute crack cocaine and carrying a firearm during and in relation to a drug trafficking crime. Not only was Knox a suspect in various murders, he was also the number one supplier of narcotics in the LaSalle Park Homes housing developments. He was set to be released in November 2013. So I did my own research to see what happened to Gregory Lamar Knox, and from what I found, in 2016, a Gregory Knox was arrested as part of a drug ring bust linked to 17 murders. However, whether it's the same Gregory Knox, I can't say, although it would be a huge coincidence if it wasn't him. So I checked the federal inmate registry to see whether there were any Gregory Knoxes that were currently incarcerated in federal prison. And at the time of recording this episode, there are not. Now, he could be in state prison, but unfortunately, I don't have access to many state prison registries for some reason, I think because I'm in France and not in the US. So wherever he is, your guess is as good as mine. Either way, there is no further evidence linking him to Ricky McCormick. So where did Baha end up? On October 13th, 2000, Baha was managing another store in Illinois when he got into an argument with a customer called Robert Steptoe and supposedly shot him in the face. In September 2002, he was sentenced to 38 years in prison for first-degree murder. But of course, as usual, when it comes to this guy, there is always a twist. Around four years later, in May 2006, a court ruled that Baha's lawyer should have called in a gunshot residue expert to testify in person. And because of this, they granted him a new trial. In this new trial, the defense argued that it was self-defense, that apparently they were struggling with the gun, and then it went off. On May 15th, 2008, Baha was free. 
and he apparently relocated to Ohio. His brother Juma apparently relocated to the Philippines. Ricky McCormick's family told journalists that they were never told at the time about the Hamdullahs being suspects or about the notes. Additionally, they do not believe that he's capable of writing code, and they said that he has never written in code before. They told investigators that he would sometimes write down nonsense and that the only thing he could really write was his name. The FBI, however, remain firm in their convictions that not only are the notes code, but that Ricky did write them. Dan Olson states that they are written in a format of something written to oneself as opposed to written to someone else. And he thinks that it's some sort of to-do list. So at the time of recording this episode in February 2022, there have been zero developments in Ricky's case. And to this day, no one has cracked the code and no one has been arrested for his murder. So if you think you have what it takes to crack the code to this case, I put the link to the FBI info in the description. I think given the context that we have about this case and the people who were around Ricky during this time, it seems to paint a pretty clear picture of what could have happened to him. I would also have to agree with Dan Olson that the notes aren't gibberish. Just looking at them, they seem to have a structure to them. And I think that the reason that they haven't been cracked is, like he said, if Ricky wrote them, he probably wrote them to himself. So there might not be a set solution to it. Now, if someone else wrote them and Ricky took them as evidence, that's a whole other can of worms. I think the key to this case is finding out what happened in Florida on that last trip. And if all of the facts that his girlfriend mentioned are true about him traveling with drugs and who he was doing it for, I think it's very clear what could have happened to Ricky. All right, guys, so that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And I do realize that I am absent for long periods at a time. It has been, you know, tricky to juggle the podcast with life and work. So I am going to try my best to be more consistent, but I also try to choose episodes that are not well known. I feel like the true crime community is a bit oversaturated at times, and I try to offer something a little bit different, which also plays into why it takes me so long to put out episodes. I also prefer to stick to unsolved mysteries because they are the ones that require or need the most exposure. So yeah, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy my podcast and would like to support me, I have a hobby where I design notebooks and journals. So if you're into notebooks and journals and would like to support the show at the same time, definitely check them out. They are available on all Amazon marketplaces. I will put the link in the description and I would really appreciate it. So that's it for me. And as usual, guys, I wish you the best wherever you are and I'll see you next time. Bye. Can't hold us back, we on another level. Yeah, it's that new age, ain't it something special? Yeah, we gon' change the game, we gon' live forever. Yeah, it's that new age, it's that new age. This is the new age. Now they wanna play, cause they tryna get paid, but they can't, cause they're too late. We got stacks already making it rain. They can't afford us now. Jump on the jet, switching borders now. Roll me off when I was 17, fast forward, then my employees.